The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The president seems destined for prison. This is Thursday, March 21st, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I never imagined reporting this. Unless he is pardoned or finds some other escape route, the president of the United States is probably looking at prison. Michael Cohen starts his three-year prison sentence a little over six weeks from now. Court papers and sworn congressional testimony strongly indicate that the 45th president has committed several of the same crimes that will put Cohen behind bars. If Trump were not president, it appears he would also be headed for prison. It appears someday he will be. If he isn't impeached or indicted before the end of his term, he could be charged the moment his presidency ends. He already faces potential charges for his active role in the hush money payments to a porn star and a Playboy model to protect his campaign for president. That's a violation of campaign finance laws, even more so because it went unreported. Michael Cohen has confirmed that the individual one named by Robert Mueller in the Trump Tower Moscow cover-up is, in fact, the president. The New York Times reports it has confirmed Michael Cohen's sworn testimony to Congress that Trump got bank loans by committing fraud. And he did it repeatedly, the same crime, over and over, the same as Michael Cohen, who will soon say a painful goodbye to his children and his wife for a few years. Only one man goes free after his crimes. He'll be in the White House until further notice. Which is more important, the question of whether Trump colluded with Russia to win the election or the question of what he's doing now? Is the president or anyone else in his administration currently under foreign influence? Perhaps that should be the question. Seasoned prosecutor Adam Schiff, who heads the House Intelligence Committee, has his mind on the present while Robert Mueller wraps up his investigation of the recent past. The Mueller probe may answer both questions, but it may not address that second question about current foreign influence. Congressman Schiff has his doubts and wants to make sure that the foreign influence question gets answered, so his committee is now looking into that. The answer will not lead to an indictment. Counterintelligence investigations tend to fail because investigators have to protect sensitive information and sources that they would be forced to reveal in court. So that would just leave impeachment. Growing up, the nightmare of a mad or evil leader was the stuff of comic book villains. In today's reality, the President of the United States tweeted more than 50 times over the weekend, nearly once an hour on average all weekend. That count is based on the period beginning at the close of business on Friday and the start of it on Monday morning. It continued beyond that, but it had been a weekend for, as the Washington Post's and Guerin described it, an airing of grievances. He tweeted like a madman on Sunday, 29 times, and still found time to make one of his occasional appearances at a church service. The number of tweets have become more important than his all-too-familiar words. And the numbers point to the three things that concern him most. The free press reporting on him. The immigrants who continue to build America. And the law enforcement investigation that's closing in. By the numbers, he tweeted six times about the evils of Democrats, including an attack on Joe Biden. He tweeted that same number of times in praise of himself. He used two tweets to attack the late Senator John McCain. More about that later, but the man with the nuclear codes was attacking an American hero who's dead. 
And then there was that one tweet to wish everyone a happy St. Patrick's Day. Number of tweets about the terrorist gun massacre in New Zealand in that same time span? Zero. 80% of his Twitter tirade in just one weekend was fairly evenly divided between the news media, immigrants, and the Russia investigation. He continued that tirade into Monday. And the numbers, even more than his words, tell us a lot. That social media tsunami was a first even for this man. He's always been a prolific tweeter, but 29 in one day had people talking, again, about his mental health, about his sanity. Conservative columnist Bill Kristol tweeted, Think seriously about his mental condition and psychological state. Kellyanne Conway's husband George called this latest display deranged and unhinged, and he tweeted the diagnosis for narcissistic personality disorder, adding, His condition is getting worse. Mrs. Conway, who works at the White House, says she does not share those concerns. Since then, Trump's been back on Twitter apparently trying to sabotage the marriage of one of his top aides. Trump's mental stability has been discussed before, but this time the concern was so great the White House dispatched senior advisors to the network's Sunday morning shows and to the cable news channels to make the case that the president's brain is functioning just fine. Thank you. The White House dispatched acting, part-time, White House Chief of Staff and Budget Director Mick Mulvaney, who moonlights as the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, to go on TV to say, quote, the president is not a white supremacist. Fourteen tweets attacked television news and entertainment, the usual stuff, but this weekend, even including the Fox News Channel. And the episode of Saturday Night Live that set him off was a rerun. The leader of the free world was on his phone again, angrily tweeting at comedy TV shows that made fun of him. Even the reruns. He'd attacked SNL and the late night talk shows before, but this time his threatened revenge was a bit more specific. Should the Federal Election Commission and or FCC look into this, he tweeted. As usual, Trump had framed his threat as a question. He wasn't saying there'd be an investigation of TV comedy, which is protected by free speech under the First Amendment. He was merely asking if there should be an investigation of SNL, Stephen Colbert, and the rest after making it clear that is exactly what he wants. And he made this threat without directly attaching himself to it. It was, after all, just a question, right? That detachment from such ideas is a characteristic Michael Cohen tried to describe in his public testimony about his ex-boss. Still, the arguably most powerful man in the world spent a third of his busy Twitter weekend continuing his attacks on and threats against the media. He even attacked his beloved Fox News channel for not supporting him enough. Fox had suspended one of the hateful hosts he loves, failed to stand up for another, and kept on the three reasonable news anchors who still work there. Stop working so hard on being politically correct, he tweeted to Fox, advising it will, quote, only bring you down. He told Fox to bring back Janine Pirro, who appears to have been suspended from her job after Islamophobic remarks about a Minnesota lawmaker causing advertisers to drop her show. And he told his 59 million Twitter followers to fight for Tucker Carlson, whose racism, misogyny, and homophobia were revealed the week before, and to fight hard for Janine Pirro. And just hours after threatening an investigation of Saturday Night Live. But those were just 14 of the tweets the presidential thumbs hammered out over the weekend. 
He also tweeted 14 times during the weekend about immigration, about the scourge he believes it is, and about the great things he's doing to stop it. And nearly tied with TV and immigration, the other thing that was occupying the mind of the president over the weekend, the Russia investigation, and all the other investigations into him. Former Indiana Senator Birch Bayh died this week at the age of 91. Here's why you need to know that. Bayh was the senator behind two constitutional amendments, the 26th Amendment, which gave 18-year-olds the right to vote, and its predecessor, the 25th Amendment, which allows the removal of an unfit president. The next 10 days or so could be quite busy. Earlier this month, the Washington Post asked District Judge Amy Berman Jackson to unseal the records from her courtroom in the Paul Manafort case and to unredact as much as possible now that Trump's 2016 campaign manager has already been sentenced to prison. The Post was frustrated that so much material had been sealed or redacted, and it wanted to know why they still are now that Manafort's been put away. It's not an unusual request from the news media. Also not unusual, by law, prosecutors get to weigh in before the judge decides whether to grant or deny a media request. In this case, the prosecutor is special counsel Robert Mueller, and he's asking the judge to give him until April 1st to respond to that request because of, quote, the press of other work. In other words, Mueller expects to accomplish a lot over the next 10 days. But Mueller is nothing if not mysterious. In asking for this delay, he also cited the need for, quote, additional time to consult within the government. It's not clear at all, but he's likely referring to the Justice Department, which may be a sign there are likely to be new indictments or something bigger. The Washington Post lawyers did not oppose Mueller's request for a delay, saying the government's filing spoke for itself. And we've just learned that former White House staffer and longtime Trump confidant Hope Hicks plans to cooperate with Democrats in the House who are investigating Trump. Hicks has already been interviewed by investigators for special counsel Robert Mueller and has now agreed to turn over documents to Congressman Jerry Nadler, who chairs the House Judiciary Committee. That committee wants to see every note and email Hicks has that describe the activities of this president. Nadler says, except for the White House... Nearly all the 81 parties who were to make Monday's deadline for handing over requested documents have either agreed to cooperate or asked that they be subpoenaed. The White House itself is refusing to provide a single document to the Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings or to any other congressional committee on any topic whatsoever, including a committee of the Republican-controlled Senate, which is concerned about Trump's plan for a new tariff on cars. More on that later. Republicans are not happy about that tariff, and they're not happy that Trump is not cooperating with their request for information. Republicans. And they're especially unhappy about Trump's refusal to hand over those documents. Will this be where Republicans join Democrats in drawing a line? Will they join Democrats in slapping the White House with subpoenas, as happened when Nixon refused to hand over his secret Oval Office tape recordings in 1973? the only other time in history such a thing has happened, and it did not end well for that president. Now, as then, the White House is stonewalling the constitutional mandate of Congress to serve as a check and balance on the president. And while the White House refuses to cooperate, former White House staffer Hope Hicks is cooperating, as is former White House advisor Steve Bannon. Deutsche Bank is cooperating. 
So is the publisher of the National Enquirer. And so is Mike Flynn's lobbying firm. And so is a former employee of the Trump campaign data company, Cambridge Analytica. Both Flynn, who was the president's first national security advisor, and Paul Manafort's campaign deputy, Rick Gates, have seen their trial dates repeatedly delayed as they both continue to cooperate with investigators at all levels. Gates' lawyer just revealed last night he's been asked by the special counsel's office not to cooperate yet with the House Judiciary Committee because federal investigators are not done with Flynn just yet. Even a Russian who took part in that infamous Trump Tower meeting during the campaign has agreed to cooperate. We don't know yet if they'll get cooperation from former Press Secretary Sean Spicer, Chief of Staff Reince Priebus, one-time campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, Trump data guru Brad Parscale, or the president's eldest sons, Eric and Donald Trump Jr. They have yet to respond to the Judiciary Committee's request for their documents, and they have refused comment for Politico. But people we never expected to cooperate are doing so as the probes dig deeper into Trump and his presidency. The drama increases. The count was 420 to zero when lawmakers voted to demand that the complete Robert Mueller report on Trump and Russia be made public just as the last buzzcast was being released one week ago today. Republicans joined Democrats in that near-unanimous vote. The demand was directed at the Justice Department, which doesn't have to obey it. But the vote turns up the heat on DOJ to do just that. It was one of the three times this past week that even the Republican-held Senate was bucking the boss. It was a bad week for Trump, with Democrats running the House, and it was a bad week for Trump, with Republicans running the Senate. Senate Republicans voted to end Trump's military aid to Saudi Arabia's war in Yemen. Republican senators were willing to act against their president after he refused to punish the Saudis for the murder of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi. They were willing to act against him as they voted down his declaration of a national emergency at the southern border. Republicans were willing to stand up to this president, at least this time, to say on the record they resisted handing their constitutional spending powers over to a branch of government that's constitutionally not supposed to have those powers. But like too many abused spouses, the Republican-controlled Senate will tell us they love him and they don't want him punished. Now that Trump has vetoed the bill to overturn his emergency declaration, the Senate's expected to vote with him on the declaration instead of against him. Their outrage about the constitutionality of the declaration was symbolic, not something they care to pursue any further. All better now. And let history reflect, Republicans voted against the fake emergency once, but not in their final vote on the matter. But they also had said no to their president not once, not twice, but three times in one week. Even the Republican Senate was stepping up, at least on some things, to uphold its constitutional duty to act as a check and balance against the president. In the House, which has started a string of investigations into Trump world, Republicans joined Democrats in virtual unanimous approval of the release of the full Mueller report. 402 to 0. Trump now says he too favors the public release of the report and correctly points out it's up to the U.S. Attorney General William Barr. There are doubts about Trump's claim. There are good reasons the law requires Mueller to hand a confidential report to the Attorney General, and Trump Attorney General William Barr has the authority to decide what will and won't be made public. He's indicated, at the very least, he'll redact that which could harm national security and or protect those who quietly cooperated with law enforcement in accordance with DOJ policy. 
there's concern he'll redact to protect the guilty as well and perhaps release parts that could damage the innocent. The Justice Department rules bar sites went out the window when the House was controlled by Republicans who demanded to see classified data and then published it. Their demand threw confidential sources out the window and posed potential risks to the nation's security. The Republicans in that case did not release everything they had subpoenaed, just the parts aimed at discrediting the Russia probe, the FBI, and the Department of Justice itself. That opened the door for the Democrats, who now control the House, to demand the full release of the full Mueller report. House Intelligence Chair Adam Schiff says, Last year, I directly warned the department leaders that in providing these materials to Congress, they were establishing a precedent. Now that the precedent has been set and with concern the policy could also be used as a cover-up, Democrats are out to get the full Mueller report the minute it appears. We know the completion of the Mueller report is near. The special counsel's office has confirmed reports that one of Robert Mueller's top prosecutors, Andrew Weissman, will be leaving that office in the near future. Things got worse for Trump in another way. A state appeals court in New York ruled that a sitting president can be sued for things he allegedly did before he took office. The court ruled that Trump can be sued by women Trump called liars after they accused him of sexual misconduct. The court was ruling on a case brought by former apprentice contestant Summer Zervos, one of about a dozen women who made these accusations before the election. She was trying to sue Trump for the defaming of her character, and Trump's lawyers were trying to stop that lawsuit. They failed. As legal precedent, the court cited the case involving President Clinton and a woman named Paula Jones. It was established then by the U.S. Supreme Court that presidents can be sued for their unofficial acts even while in office. This past week, a court again ruled that no one is above the law, including the president, whether the accuser is Summer Zervos or Stormy Daniels or any one of a dozen other women. And that ruling could affect another Trump case, the New York Attorney General's lawsuit against his now-defunct fake charity, the Trump Foundation, in which his lawyer's strategy leans on a sitting president can't be sued. The New York Appeals Court ruling says he can and one more note about Summer Zervos' lawsuit that will now go forward. There'll be depositions. Between now and the end of June, people will be called to answer questions under oath in this case. And since he is not immune after all, one of those to be deposed is the sitting president. Expect a fight that could go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Trump believes he has the Supreme Court in his pocket. Many observers, however, think he may not. With a growing list of failures and defeats and law and order closing in, Donald J. Trump is losing, and he hates losing. His presidency appears to be in grave danger from the law for a variety of well-documented law-breaking. Increasingly trapped and cornered by threats of his own making, Trump is lashing out madly on Twitter, but also making even harsher threats against free speech and the rule of law. But will disparaging justice and free speech be enough? Is there something more Trump could do to get out of this tightening corner? Quoting his interview for the far-right readers of Breitbart News, I have the support of the police, I have the support of the military, the support of bikers for Trump. I have the tough people. They don't play it tough until they go to a certain point, and then it would be very bad, very bad. Actually, I think that the people on the right are tougher, end quote. Yeah, that means what you think it means. 
Trump was telling the Breitbart crowd that if push comes to shove, he has the tough people, cops, military, bikers, you know, the people who could maim or kill the people who disagree with Trump. Thankfully, this president overestimates the love, which is about the same in law enforcement and the military as in the general population. In other words, six or seven in ten cops, soldiers, and bikers would likely pass on the chance to join a Trump militia. So Trump's comments are born out of delusion, but also carry the ominous threat of violence. We've seen him encourage violence before, giving red hats a green light to, quote, knock the crap out of any protester making trouble. And he threw out an empty promise to pay any legal fees such violence might prompt. In this interview, he was more specific about the targets. House Democrats telling his followers they do things that are nasty. And Trump's comments came in the aftermath of a terrorist attack in which dozens of people were killed by gunfire at two mosques in New Zealand. Because it was the motive behind the attack, Breitbart asked Trump if he thinks white nationalism is on the rise around the world. I don't really, he replied, adding, I think it's a small group of people. He's wrong. Again. Worldwide, over the past eight years, there have been over a dozen deadly attacks by white supremacists. 77 people were killed by gunfire and a bomb in Norway in 2011, the killer saying he wanted to prevent an invasion of Muslims. Make note also of the word invasion. That same year in London, a man drove a van into worshippers outside a mosque, killing one person, injuring a dozen others as he shouted, I want to kill all Muslims. Anti-Muslim groups have grown in this country in size and number since Trump took office. The FBI says the rise of hate groups has surged over the past three years, since sometime during the Trump campaign in which he promised a Muslim ban. Eleven people were killed last year in a synagogue in Pittsburgh. There was an attack on a Sikh temple in Wisconsin, an attack on an Islamic center in Quebec, a black church in South Carolina. White nationalists had staged a deadly march in Charlottesville that killed one and injured 19, and the president's response was, find people on both sides. And now New Zealand. Not surprisingly, Trump was mentioned as an inspiration for the attack in the manifesto written by New Zealand's white supremacist. It called Trump a symbol of, quote, renewed white identity and common purpose. Also not surprising, the president's use of the word invasion. On the same day, Trump said he didn't think white nationalism was a growing danger. He told reporters he'd signed his emergency wall declaration to prevent, quote, an invasion. People hate the word invasion, said Trump, adding, but that's what it is. This is the same president who's targeted Muslims verbally. During the campaign, he declared, Islam hates us. He has implemented, to the extent the courts will let him, his Muslim ban. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern disagrees with Trump's assessment that white nationalism is a small group of people. More than two dozen alleged white nationalists were arrested in this country just in the final months of 2018, and the FBI has opened 900 domestic terror investigations. Government numbers show hate crimes up 17% in 2017. In that year alone, nine mosques were attacked in this country per month. On average, the Anti-Defamation League reports an increase in white supremacist groups by 182%. There was an uptick after the election of Barack Obama and a surge during the Trump campaign and beyond. The fact is, white nationalism is on the rise. 
and its group of people is not so small. Presidential jack-of-all-trades Mick Mulvaney was making his Sunday morning talk show rounds when he said it was absurd to draw a connection between Trump's words on immigration with the New Zealand shooter's words, specifically the word invasion. But Trump has proudly proclaimed he is a nationalist, which was music to hateful ears. It's almost as if Trump knows in this exactly what he's doing. Cesar Sayoc appears to have been inspired to violence by Trump. Sayoc was expected to plead guilty this week to mailing pipe bombs containing glass shards to Trump's enemies, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Robert De Niro, former national security officials, and current cable news hosts at CNN. Most or all of these Trump Twitter targets. The white van in which Cesar Sayoc lived was plastered with pro-Trump and anti-left bumper stickers. Inspired by Trump, Sayoc allegedly committed acts of domestic terror against people pointed out to him by the president. When journalists at Trump rallies felt truly threatened by his crowds, Trump refused to condemn violence against the reporters he has so frequently demonized. He called Mexicans rapists and killers and blamed their invasion for a rise in violence that never occurred. Trump has consistently refused to speak out against Islamophobia, racism, or the rise of white nationalism in the U.S. and around the world. Instead, he threatens those who stand against him with lawmen, soldiers, and bikers, the tough people, armed and motivated. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has predicted, quote, 2019 is going to be the most vitriolic year in American politics since the Civil War. And Trump's words inspire that rhetoric. Iowa Republican Steve King tweeted and later deleted a question of who would win a civil war between red states and blue. One side has about 8 trillion bullets, he wrote, while the other side doesn't know which bathroom to use. Wonder who would win. King was stripped of his House committee assignments this year for previous instances of white nationalist rhetoric, and yet he remains in our Congress. But Trump's latest remarks had brought out an even worse, even more violent Congressman Steve King. Growing up, the nightmare of a mad or evil leader was the stuff of comic book villains. But the man who is actually president today spent his weekend tweeting madly and embracing the evil of threatened violence as he is increasingly backed into a corner of his own making. One week to the day after Thanksgiving, police in Germany raided the headquarters of a bank to seize records. They were investigating two bank employees they had reason to think were helping customers set up offshore accounts to launder money. These two employees of Deutsche Bank had allegedly steered over 900 customers to its subsidiary in the Virgin Islands. And that was even after Deutsche Bank had been fined for laundering $10 billion for Russians. And that leads us back to Donald Trump. We still don't know why Deutsche Bank was the only bank in New York that continued to make huge loans to Trump when other banks had banished him for not paying back his loans. Deutsche Bank had always been known as a risk taker. But in this case, Deutsche Bank wanted to tie itself to a flashy, high-profile businessman, or at least a guy who had an image of success. Those were the days of the People magazine Donald Trump, confident and surrounded by luxury and beauty. Back then, even Trump's hometown newspaper, the New York Times, loved him. Maybe Deutsche Bank just wanted a piece of that. It used its association with Trump to attract new wealthy customers who do repay their loans. It collected fees for Trump's properties, the properties it had financed and technically owned. 
Trump needed cash and Deutsche Bank needed street cred on Wall Street. Maybe that's the explanation for Deutsche Bank's lending hundreds of millions of dollars to a guy who'd never pay it back. $300 million of that was handed over to Trump by the woman who was a managing director at Deutsche Bank. Rosemary Vrablich was bullish on Trump to the point of standing in the rain for his inaugural speech. That was also the day the bank's long relationship with Trump, which began well before Rosemary Vrablich, came to an end. By then, it was clear Trump was a polarizing figure and the likely target of embarrassing investigations. Trump was no longer a guy for Deutsche Bank to brag about. The New York Times now reports in the weeks before Trump was sworn in as president, the management of Deutsche Bank threw the car into reverse and issued a very unusual memo instructing all of its employees to never utter the word Trump in public again. The bank claims it investigated how it had become so bonded to Trump and blamed poor communication between departments. But the New York Times found that the bank had known Trump was risky as far back as 1998 when it found a forged signature on the approval of one of his loan applications. But Deutsche Bank still held on tightly to its worst customer. In 2003, Trump told the bank's bond salesman that if they could sell bonds for his hotel and casino resort business, quote, you'll all be my guest at Mar-a-Lago. The Deutsche Bank team went right to work and sold hundreds of millions of dollars of bonds for Trump and then reminded him of his Mar-a-Lago promise. Trump told him he didn't recall making that promise, but he did then fly 15 of the bank's bond salesmen to Florida on his 727 for a weekend of golf with the Donald. A year later, Trump defaulted on those hundreds of millions of dollars in bonds, and Trump asked still for another loan to build Trump Tower Chicago, offering more trips on his private plane while lying to the bank about his assets. And that's about when Deutsche Bank realized Trump was not worth the $3 billion he'd claimed he was worth on his loan application. It found that his net worth didn't even amount to one-third of that. Still knowing what it knows, the bank approved another $500 million for loan applications on which Trump had fraudulently inflated his worth by as much as 70%. And when the economy and Trump's real estate values collapsed in 2008, Trump claimed the crisis was an act of God to avoid paying back the money. But because the bank had forced Trump to put up $40 million of his own real assets, this time as collateral, it sued its favorite bad customer, Donald Trump. It was a breakup that lasted two years before Trump and Deutsche Bank settled out of court with Trump agreeing to pay back the money by 2012. By then, Trump had become the host of The Apprentice and then host of Celebrity Apprentice. And he was once again asking for a loan, this time $48 million, so he could build a Trump Tower in Chicago, the same project that led to the breakup in the court fight. But Trump and the bank were simpatico again, thanks to Rosemary Vrablich. They remained united until Trump took the oath of office. And by then, Vrablich was also making multi-million dollar loans to Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. Trump went on to ask Vrablich for a billion dollars to buy the Buffalo Bills, but he was outbid and it never happened. So Trump promised Vrablich he'd add a lot of money to his brokerage account if she could get him $170 million to buy the old post office in D.C. to turn it into a luxury hotel. He also kept his promise, putting $46 million in stocks and bonds in his Deutsche Bank brokerage account. On the day after the first Republican primary debate, Trump used a black sharpie 
to sign the documents for a $19 million loan so he could buy the Doral Resort. He lied on those documents, inflating his assets by as much as 70%, lying to the bank about the money he had to back the loan he would get. And then he asked for one last loan in 2016 to buy a golf course in Scotland. But this time, the bank's upper management stepped in because of rumblings about investigations into Trump. In his recent public testimony, Michael Cohen said he believes Trump inflated his net worth fraudulently to obtain loans. For decades, Deutsche Bank went along with this. The New York Times' David Enrich interviewed more than 20 past and present executives and board members of Deutsche Bank to produce a history of the relationship between it and Donald Trump. That history and that relationship are the subject of three investigations, two in Congress and one by the New York State Attorney General. These days, Trump's friends at Deutsche Bank are cooperating with investigators and handing over documents. Rosemary Vrablic is expected to be called before Congress to testify publicly about all of this. Michael Cohen is in prison for loan fraud. Donald Trump appears to have done the same crime. A week ago last night, the president and first lady were having dinner at the White House when Ted Cruz, Lindsey Graham, and fellow Senator Ben Sass just showed up unannounced. These prominent Republicans had interrupted Trump's dinner to give him options to avoid an embarrassing vote against his emergency order. Ted Cruz argued there are ways to get money for the wall without declaring an emergency and usurping congressional authority. Trump was not pleased and broke into an angry rant. He berated these three prominent Republican senators for showing up at the White House at night and told them they were wasting his time. Trump's recent frenetic tweets and threats are also a sign of his shriveling political power. Rarely getting personally involved in anything, Trump took part in pressuring Senate Republicans to vote with him, not against him, warning that they could suffer the wrath of his voters in the next election. White House staffers went about letting the GOP lawmakers know they're being watched, that how they vote would be observed by this president. Since his argument of border security was going nowhere, Trump made it about him. A vote against his declaration was a vote against him, he told them. His people would never forgive the senators who voted against the wall and would exact their revenge, his revenge, at the polls. He reportedly flew into a rage when some senators refused to flinch. Even though he knew they would not vote to override his veto, it was extra important to Trump not to even lose that first vote. He made it all about him, and they had the audacity to say no. When they did vote against his emergency wall, the president tweeted, VETO, in all caps, and with an exclamation point for extra emphasis. Quoting Washington Post opinion writer Greg Sargent, there is probably no better way to demonstrate one's manly strength and control than firing off a tweet in capital letters. And even that veto may be hollow. What Trump and his base may not realize is that repeated votes by Congress against paying for that wall, including this vote against the emergency declaration, will be used as evidence in court about Trump's emergency that isn't an emergency at all. Reuters reports that Trump plans to get some of his emergency wall money from the budget that funds schools for the children of our soldiers and military personnel. It's a power grab because the political power of the Trump presidency has otherwise begun to fade. A daughter of the late Senator John McCain did not take it well 
when her father was posthumously attacked by the man who currently occupies the Oval Office. No one will ever love you the way they loved my father, Meghan McCain tweeted back after Trump had slammed her departed dad for giving the Steele dossier to the FBI, no part of which has been disproven. He had slammed the late senator for voting no on the bill to kill Obamacare. After he had falsely asserted, lied, that Senator McCain was last in his class at the U.S. Naval Academy, Megan McCain tweeted that if she had had more Saturdays with her father, she would not have spent them on Twitter. The next day, Megan McCain was on TV, on The View, saying to Trump, your life is spent on your weekends, not with your family, not with your friends, but obsessing over great men you could never live up to. But Trump doesn't apologize, and he doesn't let go. NBC's Kristen Welker asked the president why he would attack a man seven months after his death. Trump said he was unhappy with McCain's vote that stopped the killing of Obamacare. Quote, he said, thumbs down, I think that's disgraceful, he said, interjecting, there were other things. That's a likely reference to McCain giving the Steele dossier to the FBI, a document Trump and others falsely believe started the Russia investigation. That investigation began over drinks when Trump campaign aide George Papadopoulos told an Australian ambassador they'd get dirt on Clinton from Russia. That's when and how the Russia investigation began. The Steele dossier came later. I was never a fan of John McCain, and I never will be, Trump concluded, adding, thank you, everybody, thank you, so reporters would be ushered out of the room. And then last night, as the ghost of John McCain continues to haunt Donald Trump, he spent another five minutes slamming the dead hero and complaining that McCain's family never thanked him for approving the arrangements for McCain's state funeral. You could have heard a pin drop. The crowd in Ohio listened to Trump's bizarre tirade in stunned silence as the leader of the free world unraveled before their eyes. A Georgia Republican spoke up, calling Trump's comments deplorable, a controversial word when it was used by Hillary Clinton in the 2016 campaign. It was Trump who, in that campaign, said McCain is not a war hero. History will reflect that McCain was precisely that. History will also record what this president said about him. Trump's Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has just handed the boss a legal basis for allowing a big tariff on imported cars as part of Trump's trade war. The department's opinion that Trump can claim national security as a reason for a sharp new tariff on vehicles from Europe and Asia, which now comprise much of the U.S. car market. And the countries that make those cars are likely to retaliate to Trump's tariffs with new and matching tariffs of their own on cars the U.S. exports to them. As a result, American car sales would plummet as the price of each vehicle shoots up by thousands of dollars per car. More American auto industry jobs would be lost. This is the tariff that has upset Republicans in the Republican-controlled Senate. This is the tariff for which Republicans want to see the paperwork because they are highly skeptical about Trump's car tariff scheme. And these are the papers that Trump is refusing to turn over to members of his own party in the Senate who, like the Democrats in the House, may decide to get court subpoenas for those documents. It was the Electoral College, not the popular vote, that made Donald Trump president. The Founding Fathers knew the Electoral College wasn't a perfect solution, and their decision tipped toward the Electoral College based on how the country looked then. 
Changing the Constitution is a tough go, as supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment from women can testify. But 2020 Democratic presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren has a simple workaround. Just a law that forces the state's electors to cast their ballots in accordance with the popular vote. Warren is so far not a frontrunner in the race. The most highly ranked candidates so far are Beto O'Rourke and Bernie Sanders, each of whom raised around $6 million from small donors just in the first day of their campaigns. But also breaking into the top three this week, Kamala Harris, who raised only $1.5 million in her first 24 hours. Apologies for abusing the word only. Biden's reportedly worried he'll come out of the gate like Harris when he needs to debut like Bernie and Beto. But Trump's war chest tops them all. His campaign now merged with the Republican Party and much more organized than it was in 2016. Like it or not, the game is afoot. And here, already finding dirty deeds, is Salon.com's Bob Seska. Thank you, Buzz. Comedian Stephen Wright once described that feeling of leaning too far back in your chair until you almost fall over backward, but at the last minute you catch yourself, adding, I feel like that all the time. As I observe the Trump crisis now on day 791, I have to confess, I feel like that a lot too. That queasy off-balance feeling as if I'm constantly on call, as if another catastrophe will drop at any second, and with it, more damage added to the list. It's like watching that video of a chimp with a machine gun, or better yet, it's like watching the pulse-pounding rock-climbing documentary Free Solo while high as a kite on meth. Not that I've done that, but you get the idea. This is all to say, yes, there are plenty of Trump disasters for the emerging Democratic presidential contenders to talk about on the campaign trail. There's a daily mushroom cloud of insanity erupting from the overly animated yapper of the president each waking hour, bringing an entirely fresh series of trespasses against decency, competence, and normalcy. Likewise, there's an ever-growing roster of Trump executive orders and legislation that need to be burned with fire and I'm still barely scratching the surface of this president. In that regard, the Washington Examiner's Jay Caruso and I agree, but that's about the extent of our agreement. Caruso published an op-ed the other day in which he blasted the Democratic field for discussing ideas like abolishing the Electoral College. Quote, Democrats have floated radical proposals designed only to appeal to the far-left progressive wing of the party. Those ideas include stacking the Supreme Court, or at the very least, implementing term limits for justices, pushing for a constitutional amendment to end the Electoral College, reducing the voting age to 16, and ending the legislative filibuster, unquote. He went on to blame most of the top-tier candidates for supporting these ideas, including AOC's Green New Deal proposal. Reading Caruso's article, you'd think these so-called radical ideas were the centerpiece of the Democratic platform for 2020. Not knowing any better, you'd probably agree with his assessment that these aren't the ideas on which they should be basing their nascent presidential efforts, concluding it'll collectively serve to re-elect Donald Trump. Sure, this would be a major cause for concern, but for the reality that exactly none of the candidates are running on these ideas, at least not as the centerpieces of their 2020 messaging. Not Kamala Harris, not Cory Booker, not Elizabeth Warren, not Beto O'Rourke, not Bernie Sanders, and not Kirsten Gillibrand. In fact, there's nothing on Kamala Harris's website about the Electoral College or the voting age at all. There's nothing on Cory Booker's site either. Nothing on any of the sites by the candidates listed in Caruso's article. Actually, there's one exception. Bernie's site mentions abolishing the Electoral College, 
but it's in the context of a speech transcript from 2016. This happens all the time. A candidate is asked whether they'd like to, say, abolish the Electoral College. They answer in the affirmative. And then their answer is inflated into being their entire campaign and why are they helping Trump get reelected? It's an infuriating trap and it has little to do with the candidates or their positions. Caruso's article plunges even deeper into silly season by warning the Democrats about unintended consequences. If he thinks that by killing the Electoral College, the Democrats will regret it, he's badly mistaken. No Democrat has ever won the electoral vote but lost the popular vote. If history is precedent, therefore, the Democrats aren't in any danger of undermining their own chances of victory. Speaking of which, Caruso seems to think the Electoral College thing is a proposal the Democrats are hoping to pass before 2020. While a few activists and voters might be hoping for such an intervention, the chances for implementation before 2020 are narrow. The closest opportunity for reforming the Electoral College is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which grants electoral votes to the winner of the National Popular Vote, but that's still many states away from being implemented. For it to go into effect... It requires approval by enough states equivalent to 270 electoral votes. Ironic, isn't it? As of today, the compact has been passed by 13 states, totaling 181 electoral votes. Another 89 electoral votes are required, but many of the states that are still working on passing the compact are Trump states. And by the way, the compact doesn't abolish the Electoral College either, since electors would still exist, only they'd cast their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. It's the best of both worlds, in my opinion. Again, the compact and the other ideas being floated, that's Caruso's word, by the Democrats, have no chance of passing by 2020, and everyone knows it. And that's not the idea anyway. While it's true, Trump will point at these concepts with his stumpy sausage fingers and accuse the Democrats of trying to rig the election. Guess what? He did that in 2016, and he'll do it again regardless. And frankly, I'm sick of walking on eggshells, worrying about what Trump will say. Fact, Trump makes crap up all the time, and he'll surely make up more crap about his Democratic opponents. Sure, we shouldn't feed his sociopathy by being stupid or by attacking each other with lines he can steal in the general. The truth is, however, the Democrats need to own their positions, irrespective of how Trump might mischaracterize them. Enough tiptoeing around the orange monster, and enough with blaming his opponents when he pops off. I will say this about Caruso's article. He proves my point that both election reform and presidential reform will never work if it's solely a democratic movement. Why? Because the other side will claim it's nothing but an extension of partisan gerrymandering, manipulating the system so it'll directly benefit one side. While sure, we want more democratic leaders in office, we don't want to pull a Kobayashi Maru test in which Captain Kirk defeated a no-win simulation by unilaterally reprogramming the test. This is why we have no choice but to work with never-Trumpers to make sure we prevent another despot in the not-too-distant future. If it's bipartisan, it can't be torn down as partisan hackery. Either way, Caruso's concern trolling is a fine illustration of why our political discourse is so ridiculous and growing exponentially more ridiculous by the second. 
Small things are artificially glass-blown into big things and churned through the meat grinder of social media until it all metastasizes into each candidate's only things. This is both a case of journalistic drift and intellectual dishonesty, as well as a cautionary tale for the Democrats. No matter how good you are, they'll find one response to a so-called fringe idea and tag you with that response forever. Yes, silly season is upon us, and it's just now lacing up its clown shoes. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks as always, Bob. Get more of Bob with a subscription at patreon.com slash Show or Tuesdays and Thursdays at realmnetwork.com. Bob will be back with a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his show every Tuesday. Former Florida gubernatorial candidate Andrew Gillum had a big announcement yesterday, but it wasn't about running for president. Instead, Gillum announced the launch of a voter registration drive in Florida aimed at turning Florida blue to squirrel Trump's chances for re-election by retaking a purple state that Trump would need to win a second term. Gillum, who's been a successful fundraiser, kicks off Forward Florida with nearly $4 million. Florida's Democratic Party, meanwhile, has already allocated $2 million on voter registration with a goal of 200,000 new voters who are unhappy with Trump. What happened in New Zealand this past week would not happen here in the U.S. Sure, the mass gun slaughter could occur, as they have in this country before. What would not happen here, apparently, what never happens here, is the kind of rapid response to a gun problem like the one we have just seen by New Zealand's prime minister. There will be changes to our gun laws, she announced forcefully, within hours of the shooting. And she put it at the top of her Monday morning cabinet meeting to look for the right approach in a nation that, like the U.S., is overpopulated with deadly guns. In this country, it would be too soon, after the deaths of 50 people and the critical wounding of a dozen others, to discuss the proliferation of guns and violence. In this country, we are condemned for politicizing the grief of losing so many loved ones when it isn't really about politics at all. It's about public safety under threat by the spread of guns and gun violence, and it is not too early or too political to talk about it in New Zealand. Within 48 hours of the massacre, protesters appeared outside gun shops that sell military-style rifles, demanding those stores close for the weekend out of respect for the victims. It was not too soon or too political to have that discussion in New Zealand. And last night, New Zealand banned military-style semi-automatic and assault rifles and high-capacity magazines, effective immediately and within six days of a single gun slaughter. How many have we had? What just happened in New Zealand still hasn't happened here, where gun slaughter after gun slaughter has apparently made us numb. But back in Connecticut, the state Supreme Court was greenlighting a lawsuit by the Sandy Hook families blaming Remington for the deaths of their children. The parents are suing the legendary gunmaker for marketing its AR-15 as a weapon of mass destruction, pitching it as a combat weapon and as a way to boost manhood. They're alleging that Remington's marketing approach was aimed at high-risk users, the people most likely to kill 20 first-graders and six other people, for example. Unlike the makers of cars, medical equipment, and nearly everything else, Gun manufacturers have not been held liable when someone gets hurt or killed by their product. The Connecticut Supreme Court ruling goes against precedent and may set a new one despite a fierce fight by the gun lobby. 
but the NRA and the others lost an important battle in Connecticut this week. The question of gunmaker liability will now likely hand in the laps of the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington. These families did not give up amid the death threats they received after right-wing talk show hosts preached that the Sandy Hook gun massacre never happened, that the parents were actors, part of a conspiracy to confiscate America's guns. The families of those dead soldiers did not give up then, and they're not giving up now. His parents were not home Saturday morning when a six-year-old boy in the Miami area found an unsecured gun in his home and accidentally shot himself in the head and died. Another child saw it happen. The boy's grandmother called 911. Under Florida law, when an unsecured weapon falls into the hands of a minor, the adult responsible for that access is guilty of a second-degree misdemeanor. In Missouri, two young men were found dead separately in their respective cars, both of which had been torched. Three other young men died in what have been ruled suicides, and one other died of an overdose. What all six of these young men have in common is their involvement in the protest in Ferguson nearly five years ago. A local minister found a mysterious box in his car recently. Police brought in the bomb squad. There was a six-foot-long python inside. Police say they have found no links between this or the deaths of those six young men and the Ferguson protests over a police officer's killing of 18-year-old Michael Brown. The pilots of a doomed Boeing 737 MAX desperately scanned the handbook to try to stop the nosedive that ultimately crashed their Lion Air passenger jet into the ocean last October. They didn't find the answer, and time ran out, and the 31-year-old pilot and his first officer and his crew and scores of other people died. This week, we heard for the first time the cockpit voice recordings from the flight's final moments. The day before, the extra pilot was hitching a ride on a Boeing 737 MAX again for Lion Air when the plane started acting up. But it was that third pilot riding in a cockpit jump seat who knew what the problem was and told the crew how to turn off the computer's flight control system so they could regain control of the aircraft, which landed safely. They did as he advised, and lives were saved. There was nothing about this in the handbook. But it wasn't just that. An apparently faulty sensor that reports to the computer and a software update are also suspected as probable causes for the 737 MAX crashes. When Boeing rolled out the 737 MAX, the FAA inspected the new hardware, the lithium batteries, the pressurized fueling system, and the new inflatable safety slides. The FAA did not inspect the new computer software or the hardware associated with it. Boeing did that. Understaffed, the FAA delegates some of a new plane's inspection process. It falls to the manufacturer, whose focus is getting hundreds of billions of dollars in profits as soon as it can push that plane onto the market. The inspection failure is on Boeing, but also the FAA, which is bottom line responsible for the airline safety of Americans. The FBI has now launched a criminal investigation of the certification of the 737 MAX to find out what Boeing and the FAA knew and when they knew it. The FAA falls under the jurisdiction of the Transportation Secretary Elaine Chow, who's launched an investigation by the FAA's Inspector General into how the 737 MAX was cleared for takeoff. Congress will investigate as well and likely call Boeing executives to testify publicly by subpoena if necessary. FAA officials and others will be called to testify as well. 
Last year, Boeing spent more than $15 million lobbying members of Congress. Boeing isn't likely to let that money or its 737 MAX go to waste. Why Greta Thunberg skipped school? Can marijuana improve productivity? And Unicorn knocks over convenience store in the final segment after this. Spread the word, please. This program is now available on Amazon Echo. Just say her name and start Buzz Burbank News to hear the latest edition and its predecessors. And speaking of Amazon, please use that link at buzzburbank.com for all your shopping year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click on the Amazon logo. You'll land right on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old shopping bookmark. And once you've done that, I get a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really helps power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you'd rather not use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button that's right there. Thank you for all of this and for spreading the word about this effort. Night before last, a judge ruled the Trump administration broke the law by not considering the effects on the climate in its decision to lease 300,000 acres of federal land in Wyoming for oil and gas drilling. So the judge has put a freeze for now on that carbon fuel exploration. The courts, as our third branch of government, have a duty to act as a check on the other branches, including the president's executive branch. This decision by a federal judge in Washington is the first time the Trump administration has been held to account for the negative impact it's had on the environment and global warming. The Earth's oceans absorb more than 90% of the heat in our atmosphere heat generated by the sun and magnified by man-made greenhouse gases. With most of that heat being soaked up by the sea, global warming is occurring even faster than we thought, even faster than since the last time we heard it was moving faster than we thought. For the oceans, the past five years have been the hottest on record. In terms of energy, the current rate of ocean warming equals five Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs going off every one second and 150 million people around the world will have to move to higher ground because the ocean is swelling. Warm water expands as it gets warmer, and that accounts for one-third of the rise in our sea levels. We've already seen the stronger tornadoes and hurricanes. We've seen the floods that will hurt our food supply by shutting down so many farms in Nebraska, putting those farmers out of business, with damage there totaling over a billion dollars. The men and women who fish our seas are catching fewer of them. The fish aren't holding up well in the warmer water. We've seen the raging fires and mudslides. Here in the U.S., the water on our shores has crept up by nine inches. In North Carolina, the rising sea has contaminated valuable farmland with sea salt. Catastrophic climate change isn't coming. It's here. Now. The U.S. is nearly two degrees warmer than it was a hundred years ago. And as things stand now, it will get worse. But scientists say it's not too late to act if we act aggressively now. 16-year-old Greta Thunberg refused to go to school. Greta normally kept very much to herself and tended to fall into crippling depression, but something had brought her out of her shell. Instead of school, 
She parked herself at the Swedish Parliament to protest the grown-ups' lack of concern about her future and the futures of her friends. She was armed with flyers to state her grievances to anyone who'd look, and many did. Others joined her in her protest, and it all went viral. Keep to herself, Greta ultimately attended a United Nations climate conference in Poland and told the various nations' negotiators, you are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. At a World Economic Forum in Switzerland, she told the world's wealthy that many of them had made, quote, unimaginable amounts of money at the expense of the planet that's supposed to support her future. She has now been nominated, Greta has, for the Nobel Peace Prize. Inspired by Greta, students went on strike in more than 1,600 events in over 100 nations around the world last Friday to demand that grown-ups do something about global warming. That actually has Greta smiling. Quoting her, I have meaning. I have something to do. I'm happier now. If only there was a way to stop these kids and their wild ideas about global warming. Florida will see you now. A Republican state senator from Ocala, Florida, has introduced a bill that would treat climate change and evolution as, quote, controversial theories. Neither are theories. Both have been established as fact throughout the scientific community, according to a professor of atmospheric sciences at the University of Miami, who is more likely versed on the subject than Senator Baxley of Ocala, who co-authored Florida's Stand Your Ground gun law. Baxley says schools should teach different worldviews, as he called them. A science teacher north of Orlando, who founded the state's Citizens for Science, says teaching these alternatives to establish science would rob valuable class time from an already packed curriculum. In spite of the needless confusion in the news this week about eggs and aspirin, the bottom line is that heart attacks have fallen by nearly 40%, and the number of people dying from them is at an all-time low. Researchers at Harvard and Yale have just finished the biggest heart attack study ever in this country, because heart attacks still do account for about one in four deaths here. Researchers say the credit for these dramatically improved numbers go to the government's Medicare and Medicaid officials, as well as to the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology for their focus on preventing heart attacks. Can marijuana actually help productivity? A Johns Hopkins University report says medical marijuana is making it possible for people with chronic pain to work longer hours resulting in increased productivity, especially among older workers. The number of people reporting they are in pain fell by 5% in states after those states legalized medical marijuana. There was nearly a 7% increase in the number of people who said they were in good or excellent health after their states passed medical marijuana. A nearly 7.5% increase in people working full-time in the 33 states where medical marijuana is legal. And that brings us back to Florida, where the Republican governor has just signed a bill to make it legal to smoke the state's already legalized medical marijuana. You've heard correctly again. The people of Florida overwhelmingly approved a measure to legalize medical marijuana. The state's Republican lawmakers quickly passed a bill that said, so long as you don't smoke it. New Governor Ron DeSantis promised he would scrap that strange law, and he put lawmakers back to work, insisting they obey the will of the people. DeSantis, meanwhile, publicly refuses to discuss climate change, and 
He supports teaching alternatives to climate change and evolution. Where are they now? These days, former Republican House Speaker John Boehner wrangles investors for the marijuana industry. Now, his successor, former House Speaker Paul Ryan, has found his calling alongside Rupert Murdoch. Ryan, Paul Ryan, has just joined Murdoch on the board of directors for the Fox Corporation, which owns Fox News. The rest of Fox, the entertainment side, Fox TV, 20th and 21st Century Fox, and all the movies and TV shows and characters, now belong to Disney, which also owns ABC and most of Hulu. Armed with these things and more, Disney is ready to take on Netflix, while noted cocktail lover John Boehner pushes weed. News about sex abuse continues to pour in from all quarters. In Pennsylvania, a state representative has resigned effective immediately after he was accused of sexual assault on a state worker who indicates she was drugged. The West Virginia Attorney General is suing the Catholic Diocese of Wheeling, Charleston, and its former bishop, Michael Bransfield. He's been accused of knowingly employing pedophiles and skipping background checks for school workers and camp counselors under his purview. And... The CEO of Warner Brothers resigned this week after accusations he offered film roles to an actress in exchange for sex. Kevin Sujahara ran the Warner studio for 25 years. The Beach Boys were amazing, but they did not invent surf music, rock and roll for surfers and those who longed to be a surfer. Dick Dale did that. He was, pardon the expression, the first wave. He was so good, Frank Sinatra offered to manage Dale's career at 10%, meaning Sinatra would keep 90. Dale also helped develop the Fender Stratocaster guitar. Quoting him, everything that came out of Leo Fender's head, I was his test pilot. Dale said he blew up a lot of amps, earning him the nickname Father of Heavy Metal. That is Dick Dale performing the opening music for Quentin Tarantino's 1994 film Pulp Fiction a song he had performed on Ed Sullivan three decades before that. Less than four years ago, Dale told the city paper in Pittsburgh, I can't stop touring because I will die. Dick Dale is done touring at age 81. Brie Larson's Captain Marvel was the number one movie in Canada and the U.S. for the second week in a row. It's now made nearly a quarter billion dollars just here in North America. What's all the fuss about? The answer lies with your tickets and other movies when you click the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. Most people don't get 15 minutes of fame. If they consider it lucky, they might get a minute or even just 10 seconds. A televised police chase on the 101 and the 405 around Los Angeles ended when a cop used his car to bump the suspect's car into a spin out. The driver came out with his hands up and police approached him carefully. And despite their drawn guns, the suspect startled the officers a bit when he used his last 10 seconds of freedom to bust a move. With TV helicopters overhead, the suspect performed a 10-second breakdance before they slapped on the cuffs. In Oklahoma, a woman was arrested after she allegedly used a T-shirt gun to launch drugs, cell phones, and other contraband over a fence that surrounds a prison. The discovery of this ingenuity led to a lockdown at the North Fork Correctional Unit 120 miles west of Oklahoma City and to the arrest of Carrie Joe Hickman, 
who was found with a T-shirt gun in her car. We're going to kidnap Al Capone, see? In Hot Springs, Arkansas, two guys from neighboring Missouri tried to steal a statue of the infamous mobster from outside the Ohio Club. Capone and the boys used to hang out about 45 miles from there in Little Rock, Arkansas. That's the theme of the Ohio Club, and it, of course, cherishes its Al Capone statue. When the club's owner gave chase, the Missouri men dropped the statue. Capone now has a broken leg, a broken arm, and a broken hat. The brim of his fedora broke off. The Missouri men have been charged with criminal mischief and public intoxication. Yes, alcohol was involved. Bootleg, maybe. Unicorns can do no harm unless they go rogue and use a crowbar to break into a convenience store to steal cash and, of course, cigarettes, and then flee in a car driven by a human who then crashes the car into several mailboxes, some shrubs, a utility pole, and a boulder. The driver, a 27-year-old, was taken to the hospital, as was the unicorn, 28-year-old Jacob William Rogue, who was no longer dressed in his pink and white unicorn costume. Police found the costume stuffed in some bushes nearby. The driver was treated and released. The rogue unicorn was initially listed in serious condition. Eyesore, it's an eyesore from a modern Stone Age family. On the 280 in Northern California, they call it the Flintstone House because of its unique architecture, which bears a vague resemblance to the house on TV's The Flintstones. Quirky is too much of an understatement. Painted in bright coral and lavender, it looks more Flintstone-y because of the fake dinosaurs and colorful cartoon character statues that surround it. And, of course, the sign out front that says, Yabba-dabba-doo. But the upscale neighbors of this modern Stone Age family are not pleased. Sure, they insist it's fine if you're just driving by, as so many people do. But imagine having to see this same bizarre coral and lavender dinosaur land every day. Local officials have begun to find the woman who has owned the place since the 1970s, but she's refusing to change the thing. This guy's neighbors complained about his tall backyard fence, and the city of Santa Rosa, California, made him shorten that fence. Jason tried insisting that he needed the high fence to keep his jumping dogs in the yard, but it got him nowhere. They ordered him to shorten the fence, and so he did. But Jason Windus did not get mad. He got even, declaring, they want to see inside my yard? Now they get to. For the first time, his neighbors, including the one who had complained, could see into Jason's backyard. And he was ready for that day, having set up a nude garden party in his backyard using store mannequins. One chair, however, was empty, except for the sign that said the seat was reserved for the neighbor who had complained about his tall fence. A Pasco County, Florida man was arrested after security video confirmed he had used his power washer to spray without permission his next-door neighbor who was out leaf-blowing at the time. 52-year-old Johnny Plaster now faces battery charges. The Habitat for Humanity thrift store in Salisbury, North Carolina, was surprised that the 1950s hand-carved bedroom suite sold so quickly, and for a thousand bucks, no less. They were surprised because the previous owners couldn't get rid of that furniture fast enough. 
The couple reported nightmares in that bed, both of them. They say their dogs would not stop barking at the canopied bed or its matching high boy chest of drawers. The couple was eager to ditch the set because they had decided it's haunted. Store employees say they believed that disclosing the bedroom suite's haunted past was the ethical thing to do, so they did. But they say the people who just took it off their hands for a thousand bucks didn't seem concerned. You'll be updated if or when they return it. And finally, fortunately, there were no injuries when a fierce fire tore through a building in southern Germany this week. The building was a crematorium. You know how I love the irony? The crematorium was severely damaged, but none of the bodies there to be burned burned in the fire. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting this free news at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.